This episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody, because... Ah, uh, yes, they yeah. do. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are The Minimalists, live in Columbus. It is so good to be back home. We just spent the day in Dayton yesterday. It was 60 and sunny, and uh, I don't know what happened since then. <laughs> We're supposed to go to Chicago tomorrow, and we plan on it, but there's supposed to be two feet of snow in Illinois, so we'll, we'll figure all of this out. But uh, tonight is a very special night, not just because we're back here at home in Ohio, but because we have two amazing people coming onto the stage to do this podcast with us. Our first guest, you know her from Simple Families, you know her from our Netflix documentary, Less Is Now, and you know her from The Minimalist Podcast. Please welcome to the stage, Dr. Danae Barahona. Yeah. I don't know where she is. She got the memo. She, told, she wore the outfit. <laughs> you want to break code. So before we, we welcome our next guest onto the stage, Danae, I want to talk to you about something. Ryan and I were having a conversation on the drive, the rainy drive up here from Dayton. And he was saying, when I have kids, the biggest thing I'm worried about is their screen time. And it's because he's heard me say, like, the worst thing I've ever done as a parent is provide screen time to my daughter. And in a perfect world, it seems to me that it's somewhat like asking, like, well, what's the appropriate amount of heroin to give to my daughter? <laughs> and so um, since you specialize in, in this, and so tonight, by the way, this show is very driven by you. So we're going to be reaching out to you for your questions. Someone's going to be dancing around with a microphone. And so if you have questions about minimalism, about kids, and anything else that we might want to talk about tonight, feel free to ask those questions. But Danae, what, um, maybe you can tie break us here, but what are your thoughts on screens for kids? Well, if you would have asked me seven years ago, I probably would have had a different opinion than I do now. My kids are five and eight, and when they were born, I was finishing up my PhD in child development, and I had very, very idealistic expectations of screen time. There was gonna be very little, and it was going to be only educational. And I found that as I started to let go of some of those idealizations moving into parenthood, that I felt lighter, and I felt more authentic with my kids. So. It's been sort of a part of my own growth to let go of that fear of screen time as my kids have gotten older. Now, when we think about too much screen time, a lot of times what we're worried about is our kids not moving enough. It's not actually the screen time that hurts them so much per se, it's what they could be doing if they weren't watching screens. So we want to increase their movement. So whenever I talk to parents about how much screen time is too much screen time, I ask, well, what are they doing the rest of the time? How much movement are they getting? And that movement is what they need to grow their bodies and brains. So focus more on what you're doing in the times that they're not watching screens and maximizing that movement, especially together as a family. I love that you say that because what you're showing too is like, uh, I don't, even with Josh and I with like minim minimalism, 
we've been doing this for over 10 years. So there are some things that, yeah, we've kind of changed on over the last 10 years. And I don't know, that's just a great example because, you know, these values and beliefs that we have, we certainly want to hold them tightly and, and appreciate them and follow them, but we don't really want to believe in them, if that makes any sense. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's an opportunity for us to, uh, by doing that, it's an opportunity for us to kind of reevaluate because one or two things happen. Either you hold tighter or you're like, oh, maybe I do want to change that a little, little bit. So, yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, you've changed a little bit over the last yeah. seven years. And sometimes what we see happens is we end up shaming our kids for enjoying screen time, which is accidental. But every kid loves screen time. Every grown-up loves screen time. I mean, you're hard-pressed to meet a human who doesn't enjoy screen time. So I think we can all make space for it. But also, you know, making that extra space for movement is really important. Yeah, what I like, what I'm hearing here is that um, instead of saying no, 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 it's what are you saying yes to? And that seems so important even outside of our kids, but quite often, even with our own obligations, we have a lot of calendar clutter in our lives because we say yes to everything. And it's really easy to say yes right now, just like it's easy to say yes to your kids. It's easier for me to say, yes, of course, I'll go to that meeting in April. I'm committing my future self. I'm ruining his day. But today, it's fine. I, I get to say yes to that, make you happy, and not knowing that, okay, three months from now, four months from now, five months from now, whatever it is, I'm, I'm decreasing my overall joy or tranquility by committing myself to something that maybe I don't want to go to. And so with your kids, I find that... Um, but quite often, I'm saying, with, with Ella in particular, she, she's eight, and I'll say yes to her all the time in a way that even if I want to say no, I find it like, she's like, oh, can I have a piece of cake? I'm like, yes, you can have one tomorrow after you've eaten your dinner. What, and <laughs> as opposed she appreciates that. <laughs> at some point, she's learned to navigate my questions, but also realizing that um, she's not constantly getting shut down. Uh, whether it's with screens or with you know, food or you know, activities, whatever it might be, things she wants to do, I find it's important to find, to find ways to say yes so that the no's tend to be more meaningful. Yeah, making space for the things that they enjoy. And sometimes those things aren't the same things that we enjoy. That's been a good lesson for me in parenthood is that you know, I, I just really thought my kids were going to love to go for walks and we were going to be a family that has dinner and then goes out for walks. And I cannot for the life of me get my kids to walk around the block. <laughs> like I would have to bribe them to get them to walk around the block with me. And to me... Well, you live in Cleveland too. So it's <laughs> no, I live in New York. Oh, well, are you really? Yeah. Okay, you're from yeah. Cleveland. That's Originally right. Yeah. From oh, County, okay, so, so you're yeah. from another snowy place <laughs> in the winter. So, yeah. Any time of the year, it doesn't matter though. But Oh, wow. So... I, the what what we do is we set up this picturesque life in our heads, yeah. and our happiness becomes moderated by our expectations. And all of a sudden, we uh, as soon as we don't meet one one bit of criteria, you're saying it's making us miserable. Yeah, and we know that those idealizations start as soon as pregnancy with your first baby. That you know you start dreaming of what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, what your kid is going to do when they grow up, and often, any parents out there can, can speak to this, that those idealizations do not match up with reality. And the fear, and what I've seen, especially working with thousands of women especially, 
is that when those idealizations don't match up with reality, they feel like they're failing. Mm. Mm. And I think we do this all the time. We set up certain expectations. In fact, the term is uh, mimetic belief, right? So uh, there's a great book that came out last year called Wanting. We did a podcast with the author, Luke Burgess. And he talks about mimetic desires, mimetic beliefs. But a mimetic desire is basically just a fancy way of saying, you don't actually want what you want. You want what the people around you want or what you actually think they want. Usually it's because we saw it on an advertisement. You saw some family walking with their kids after yep. dinner sometime. And it Absolutely. was like, that is going to be me. And that's when we're going to be happy. As soon as yep. we do that, that's going to complete me. Mm -hmm. It's a type of uh, consumerism for parenting in a way. You know, consumerism is just buying things because you think they're going to make you complete or happy. In fact, walking through this mall that we're in right now. That's right. If you're listening to this at home, we're broadcasting from a mall. And I know that sounds really weird at first, right? We're broadcasting, but where would you rather us be? You want us to go to like a Zen temple and be like, hey, you guys need to simplify your lives. Dude, when I lived in Ohio, I would make like special trips to Easton, man. Like, <laughs> it was like the mall. It was the place to go. Well, when you're in Dayton, you know, it's <laughs> the closest cool mall to go to. I was uh. disappointed to see that on the door, you have to be 16 to be here unaccompanied. I don't know, my childhood would have been ruined. I think oh, that's all I did yeah. on the weekend was go to the mall. So Yeah, there's a story in uh, Love People Use Things of me being arrested at the Dayton Mall. <laughs> and um, the store I was arrested in is now closed, so who won, really? <laughs> You'll have to check out the book for that one. But it's a whole chapter about, about values. There, but there's a, uh, a section there about desires and, and really understanding what you desire and usually most the vast majority of all of our desires are not our desires it's what you want is not what you want or maybe a, a pithier way to say is the thing you want is never the thing you want you may think you literally you want some you know, uh, item from the buckle which is right next door to us here a <laughs> uh, pair of pants or whatever but like that's not what you actually want you already have a pair of pants, one hopes. <laughs> Not if you're a minimalist. <laughs> <laughs> but you want the way it's going to make you look in front of other people, or it's an aspirational purchase. It looks really great on that, that mannequin, right? And so, therefore, it's going to look great on me, even though I am not shaped like a mannequin. Man. Mm -hmm. I'm so confronted with my past in this place. Because Easter Mall, special trips. I used to love Buckle. <laughs> There's a lot of like resentment that is like surfacing. I'm like, man, what, what was I doing? Danae, did you have a particular favorite? Abercrombie and I, Fitch, yeah, I perhaps? Yeah, I couldn't afford the Buckle. So. <laughs> I just Me either. I just dreamed there. <laughs> it's fine if you have a credit card. You don't need to right. afford it. Ryan, during your talk, you said the average American has how many uh, credit cards? Yeah. One in ten has... Ten active credit cards. Oh, my. Okay. The average American has four credit cards. So I had four. Except for her who has zero. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Bravo. Yeah, that's awesome. I had, uh, I had 14. And because uh, I would go into, like, Banana Republic, and they're like, hey, you can save 5% if uh, you buy this shirt with a car. I'm like, hell yeah. Save me $7. And then now all of a sudden I have $500 of free Banana Republic money that I can waste this month on things that fit me poorly. Ryan would buy the um, 
the medium shirts from Hollister. That were way too small for me. <laughs> <laughs> we have one more guest here tonight, and then we'll uh, get to your questions. Uh, you know him from, well, our podcast. You know him from Netflix. You know him from his hit show, Revolution of One. His name's T.K. Coleman, and he's here tonight in the house. We think he's here. Yeah, TK. Oh, man. Good to see you, brother. He's the greatest. Um, we've known TK for a few years now. We've done quite a few of these live events with him. And I've got to tell you, he's one of my favorite people to, to have on stage, especially having him and Danae both here tonight. It means Ryan and I basically don't have to talk much. Yeah, yeah. No, we're here for, uh, for your questions. TK, I've got to admit something to you, though. I was told you I'd save this story for the event. I had no idea you were going to be here tonight. And, uh, and then, Sean, as we're... Is this, is this a black joke coming? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm ready to be canceled tonight. I, I had no idea you'd show up, brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, TK. Um, no, we're driving over here, and um, Sean's like, so is TK just in the audience tonight, or is he on stage? I'm like, what are you talking about? It's tomorrow night. He's going to be with us in Chicago. And he's like, no, 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 he's here in Columbus right now. And I'm like, oh, I offered this to him months ago, and he sent me some joke about LeBron James and Michael Jordan, and I thought he was, it was his kind way of saying, I really don't want to come to Ohio. <laughs> I'm from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and so I'm like, oh, well, he, we'll just see him in Chicago, right? We were with him in New York a few weeks ago. Like, it's all good. Like, whatever. He doesn't want to come to Ohio. And then he shows up here tonight. And not, it's not just a treat for you, but it's a treat for me to have you here tonight. I really was hoping that both of you would be here. I'm really grateful you're here, man. Hey, man. It's good to be here. <laughs> so it's funny. I had a freak out moment. It's like, the show starts at 7 at 6.30. I'm sitting in my hotel room because... Black people, you never want to be too early for something you got to be at. And I look at my watch and I go, oh, I got to get going to the show. And so I, I type in Funny Bone Comedy Club into my GPS. And then I have a freak out moment. I'm like, comedy club? I can't do this. I'm too serious. Like, I'm super serious. I'm like the serious guy you ever met. And so I'm like, oh, man, I, I need to loosen up. I need to. So I get in the car and I have a thought. The thought is laugh first and the universe will provide the reason why. And I go, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a little spiritual exercise to loosen up. For the next 30 minutes, I'm going to laugh at everything that happens, period. Because that way, it'll like elevate my spirit, get me in the mood, and I'll be ready for the comedy club. Just then, notification goes off on my phone. I look at my phone. It says, your flight for tomorrow, Chicago, has been canceled. I said, okay, we're not going to do that spiritual exercise. <laughs> We're just going to stay serious and do what we know. <laughs> Actually, I got one more. One more little story. So last night, I checked into the hotel. And uh, no kidding, man. No kidding. So uh, the guy says, what brings you to Columbus? And I said, um, just matter-of-factly, being serious. I go, oh, I got a show at the Funny Bone Comedy Club uh, tomorrow night. And he goes, oh, you don't look like a comedian. <laughs> the little angel on my shoulder was like, well, it's a good thing that you're not a comedian, right? <laughs> and the, the demon on the left side was like, what's he trying to say, right? 
And so what I should have said was, yeah, well, it's a good thing I'm not a comedian. What I actually said was, well, I guess funny comes in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> I don't know who disputes that, right? I just, I was defensive, right? And he says, so you like to tell jokes? And I said, yeah, I like to tell jokes. <laughs> and he says, uh, what time's the show? And I'm like, uh-oh, this guy sees right through me. So I backpedal a little bit and I go, uh, well, the show's at seven, but it's with the minimalists and it's really about meaning and, and philosophy of life. So, you know, it's not all about the funny. And he says, I could use a good laugh. I'll be there. And I think to myself, okay, this dude's trying to challenge me. I don't like his tone. I'll be there. The way he cocked his head back. So what I should have said was, I mean, yay, do you, man, whatever you want to do, but you know, don't expect too much. What I actually said was I leaned in and I go, good. Because we're going to be laughing all night. <laughs> Took my key and I left. So, sir, if you're here from the Hilton, <laughs> surprise, ain't nobody going to be laughing tonight because my flight got canceled. <laughs> all right. Oh, my God. Well, we're really here for you tonight. We're just getting started. So um, there's someone going around with a microphone somewhere. What we'll do is you can raise your hand, and uh, we, will, we will find a way to get to you. That way you don't have yeah. to line up. We got two hands over here. Where is our microphone? We got one right here. Oh, here he comes. Beautiful. Let's start with this gentleman right back here. Right here. Howdy. So what do, what do you guys think about the over... What's your name? Larry. Hey, Larry. You guys, you guys are great. The, thanks for being uh, here, man. Thanks. Uh, what do you guys think about, about the overconsumption of food? Mm. Well, I want to be very clear. It doesn't matter what we think about anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my beliefs are irrelevant. Um, but uh, what is the truth about, about this is we overconsume it. 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. And it's no wonder we're struggling with infectious diseases, not just COVID. There's plenty others. You can look at the list. And a lot of that has to do with how unhealthy we are. Now, this, the problem that we see with food is the same problem we see with our material possessions. Easy, cheap access to stuff, to food that we essentially gorge on. We are gluttons of stuff. We are gluttons of food. I used to be morbidly obese. When Ryan and I met, we were literally the two fattest kids in the fifth grade. At age 12, I weighed 240 pounds. And um, I mean, I was just all chin and, and muffin top. And, and what I'll tell you is that quite often we do that, whether it's consumption of stuff, going into massive amounts of debt, or eating a bunch of food that isn't really food, it's food-like products, we do that because it's the most compelling thing for us in the moment. When we, when we don't have something more compelling than the stuff, when we don't have something more compelling than the food, then that's what we go toward. Unfortunately, it's been engineered for us. And Danae, I'd love to hear you talk about this because our kids are more susceptible because they haven't built up any defense mechanism. And so when they see an advertisement, they certainly want the thing. When they see the food and it's delicious, they, they want that as well. Yeah. You know, when I first started talking about minimalism on the internet, I was finishing up my degree and my dissertation research was in picky eating. And I was really interested in looking at 
how parents fed their kids and what approach they used to feed their kids and how good of good slash eat their fruits and vegetables um, the kids were as they grew. And I was super interested in this topic. And then I got interested in minimalism. I'm like, well, I want to talk about minimalism. I want to learn and teach people about minimalism. But these two things aren't connected. But then I was like, wait, they're completely connected. Because first of all, picky eating is a first world problem, right? It's when kids have too many choices, number one, and when they have too much coaching and too much pressure from their parents. Eat this, three more bites. So this theme of too much underlies so many areas of family life. It's not just the stuff. It's the pressure. It's the anxiety and fear that drives the way that we feed our kids, the way that we clothe our kids, worried about them not having enough, um, and as a result, overdoing it. So that, that constant need to find balance. And I, I have to say I was shocked when I sort of came to that conclusion that, wait a minute, picky eating is about too much about overindulgence. Yeah, I mean, minimalism in general is about being intentional with your resources, and yeah. food is one of those resources. You know, it's funny, Josh, sometimes when we tell people that we used to be the two fattest kids in school, yeah. they always go, really? Josh, you used to be fat? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so I'm so glad I love, I love myself. <laughs> I love yourself too, Ryan. Thanks, man. Oh, shoot. You know, it, it is something that everyone struggles with. In fact, people like, they'll ask me, hey, you know, what's the one thing that you struggle when it comes to minimalism? And you know, it's everything, really. Like, my junk drawer overflows. I got to look at that. People give me things. I got to, like, look at those things. So it's like a constant. It's everything. But food is definitely one of those, especially because I am a seven on the Enneagram, which if, if any of you have not heard of the Enneagram, I would like check it out. It's a very, it's just a useful tool. It's a personality test. It's not something you want to like etch in stone and live your life by like, well, this is, you know, it doesn't define you, but it just helps you, it gives you a, a lens to look at your own life through. And a seven on the Enneagram, their uh, like deadly sin, so to speak, is gluttony. And that is me. Like I want the fire hose of fun. I want the fire hose of experiences. So uh, food is an experience. And like anytime I have an opportunity to try like just a little bit of this, especially like, you know, I'll be in Chicago and I swear if someone's like, let's go get some deep, sh deep dish pizza, I'm going to be like deep shit pizza. That was like a Freudian slip. <laughs> it's appropriate. Yeah, it is. But I'm going to be like, well, yeah, I'm in Chicago. Well, you're in Chicago. You got to eat deep dish pizza. And I do that everywhere we go. And sometimes I catch myself and I'm able to take a step back. But yeah, it is something uh, that I certainly, certainly struggle with. What about you, TK? Yeah, man, I mean, food is one of the most socially acceptable forms of medicating, right? Yeah. It's called comfort food for a reason. Um, I, I just heard a priest say the other day, uh, the acronym HALT. He says HALT. H stands for hungry, A stands for angry, L stands for lonely, T stands for tired. He says, whenever we get into trouble and we begin to make unhealthy decisions, it's because of something missing in one of those four categories. And I think food is one of the easiest things to reach for whenever we're hungry, we're angry, we're lonely, or we're tired. And so the way out isn't by saying, all right, I'm going to force myself to follow a bunch of meticulous rules pertaining to food. The way out is to think about our purpose. 
and get back to what life is all about because the way to not do what is wrong or what is unhealthy is to develop a positive vision of what is right or what is healthy. It's like that verse in the Bible that says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Be consumed with the positive focus and then we don't have to overconsume on the things that destroy us. I saw a hand over here somewhere. Right here. This young lady up front. Howdy. What's your name? I'm Shannon. Hey, Shannon. So I have been texting you guys like crazy. Are we having the show or not? Because I had to drive down from Akron. Oh, you're that so Shannon. I'm the Cleveland uh, Facebook <laughs> person. So I'm the admin oh, for so the cool. Cleveland one. Okay, so. so the Cleveland Facebook person, what she's talking about is uh, we have a website, minimalist.org. And basically back in 2014, Josh and I, we went to 100 different cities. And what we did is left behind a minimalist meetup group in each of those cities. Uh, people were always asking us leading up to that point. They're like, hey, like, you know, this event you guys had, it's really good. But like, how do I, how do I connect with more people like this? And Josh and I were like, okay, Cupid? Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Tinder? I, with no clue. So uh, we came up with this idea. And awesome people like Shannon uh, have stepped up to like lead these different groups. And um, now, like, we're just now starting to meet up in person again and mm -hmm. stuff. So... Uh, yeah, if you're interested in finding like-minded folks, there's also an online city because uh, yeah. I don't think Columbus has one. But anyway, thanks so much for stepping up and doing that. Well, you're awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's just an honor. You guys have really changed my life, all of you. So, um, you know, I was really excited to see you because I am a foster. My husband and I are foster parents to a one, five, and six-year-old. This is our second sibling group. And, um, you know, of course, screen time is something we kind of argue about um, a little bit. You know, I would like them to have less screen time, less on the video games, less on TV, more like reading or pretend play, because I've been in child development as well. Um, but one of the things I wanted to bring up and, and a question that I've had and that something I've struggled with is what is the appropriate amount of stuff to have as a foster parent because you never know what age you're going to get. So in my basement, I do have shelves with, you know, um, Rubbermaid containers of toys for certain age groups, certain pretend play. We've been told um, that, you know, certain things are, are important for play for children, like transportation items or um, make-believe or building, building blocks. Um, so I just, you know, wanted to hear what your thoughts were on like what are what you know or what i can do to maybe manage that a little bit better in in my own life as a foster parent so thanks yeah, that's a great question so i was a foster care social worker many many years ago um, and part of my job was to go into the home and to visit with the families and teach the family skills particularly particularly skills for managing difficult behavior in the children um, and i'm kind of reflecting on the homes that i went into and something that I, I see when I'm visualizing those homes is I don't remember any toys in the homes. And what I remember was the relationships, the people. And what those kids are there for is for that connection with you. And they are learning every single day when they see you modeling that relationship with everyone in your home and with them. And that little piece that you're offering to them will stay with them forever. So. Whatever toys you have, I think are great. I think they're probably more than enough, um, especially if you have a kid that's coming from a home with, where there hasn't been a strong adult presence. They're gonna wanna do what you're doing. They're gonna wanna be in the kitchen cooking with you or you know, that to me is the most valuable way for them to be spending their time 
is really experiencing family life in a positive way. So I think you're doing better than you know. <laughs> we just had Christmas about a month or so ago, right? And we don't do physical gifts in our home, except I have in-laws. <laughs> and so the presents tend to show up. Now we do gifts, so like we'll do experiential gifts, horseback riding, horse riding lessons, a lot of things involve horses. <laughs> Sounds like Ella likes horses. No, she hates them. <laughs> and um, so we, but then these physical gifts show up, and some of them, are, you can just tell they're not very intentional. It's like, here's a bunch of cheap plastic stuff that I pressed one click to send to you rather expediently, right? And so it's the opposite of what we want to do when we're gift giving. Why do we g give gifts to other people? We, sometimes we, we hear that gift giving is my love language. Well, that's nonsense. That just means you don't understand what love is, and that's fine. It's a like language, um, but you can't commodify love. What we're really saying is I'm giving you this gift because I want to add value to your life. Now, I might happen to love you as well, but that's not how you show love. It is show how you add value to someone's life sometimes. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But when we get these, all these physical gifts around our Christmas tree, which was just our um, palm tree that we, like we have this tree in our, our kitchen that we put wrapping paper around and put some Christmas lights in. And, and Ella's opening up all these gifts, but one of them came in this giant box with all these horrible styrofoam packing peanuts, right? And uh, she's opening it up, and she sets the toy aside, doesn't even look at it, and for the next two hours, plays with all the peanuts that are in the packaging. And she's laying them out. She's making snow angels and the packing peanuts on our living room floor. And I don't even think she knows what gifts she got for Christmas, but she'll remember those packing peanuts for the rest of her life. All my daughter wanted for Christmas this year was Gotta Go Turtle. Does anybody know what that is? So it's a turtle that poops kinetic sand. That's all it does, is it just Well, poops, now I want one. Right, and it's actually turtle, T-U-R-D, turtle. Um, so it might be the worst toy I've ever seen. And that's all she wanted, she's five. And I told her no. And then she told me that if she couldn't have Gotta Go Turtle, then all she wanted was a new mom that would give her Gotta Go Turtle. <laughs> oh my and Kids say the darndest things. Right. Yeah. And it, well, part of that is like, how do you hear that? How does that feel? Like to me, I thought that was kind of funny because yeah. she loves me unconditionally. And I have no doubt of that. She's going to have those positive and negative feelings towards me all the time, especially when she's disappointed in a decision that I've made. But... Her love for me will hold strong, even though I said no to Gotta Go Turtle. And she has not let me forget it, but there is no Gotta Go Turtle at our house. <laughs> oh, that's and, and just to say, it's not about the, the stuff isn't evil or wrong. There was a stat that, Ryan, you, were, you gave during your talk about toys and children. And what was it? Uh, yeah, so the average American kid has about 300 toys. And they play with about, because you can't play with 300 toys at once. Well, Ryan could. <laughs> He's a seven. Yeah, so they... they yeah. Oh, man. Like, Just, uh, I'm, like, I'm, like, really taking that as a challenge. I know you're joking, but... <laughs> <laughs> Taking that as a challenge. Yeah, yeah but they do you know why he's a minimalist said, right now? Because he asked me about minimalism like 13 years ago. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. You could never do it. <laughs> well, still, like every day you tell me I'm not a minimalist. <laughs> He's the messiest minimalist I know, though. He owns, like, 12 items, and they're strewn everywhere. 
we lived together for the better part of a year when we moved out to Montana. And I swear to you, he, he had about a dozen things. There'd be a sock here, like a, just a trail from him coming to the front door into his bedroom. Oh. Anyway, kids, they, um, the toys aren't evil or bad, but they do distract them from actually playing with the toys that they might get value from. And so I remember we did an event with Derek Sivers in New Zealand. It was the strangest event we've ever done. It was in a horse racetrack. Um, and there were escalators in the middle of where we were speaking. And uh, he said, well, yeah, but I, I felt like I was depriving my son, so I went on eBay and I got him this bin of toys and it just brought him so much pleasure. I could see he was getting so much value from playing with those toys. And so in that respect, I'm not a minimalist. And I said, well, I think you are. You have one box of toys. Would your, t your kid be 10 times happier if you gave him 10 boxes of toys? No, he'd be overwhelmed. He'd actually be, he'd get less joy from that than from the one box of toys. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've, you've got, you, we're not deprivationists, right? So like, we, never would we encourage you, like, how many bins do you have? Yeah, you need to get rid of all those bins, and you don't get your certificate until you do. Um, but also, we're not going to sit here and give you, you know, uh, the card to just have a, a, a cluttered home either, right? There's, there's a balance. There's somewhere in between, and it does sound like you have found a good balance. And, you know, a way to get there is by setting up some boundaries or some rules, so to speak. I mean, in our book, we've got, you know, 16 rules uh, for living with less. And like one of those is the seasonality rule or the 90-90 rule where uh, you can pick up something in your house and ask yourself, like, have I used this in the last 90 days? Am I going to use it in the next 90 days? And if you answer no to both of those questions, more likely than not, you could probably get rid of that item. And sometimes you have actual boundaries like a bin <laughs> that keeps toys contained. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about finding that balance. But, you know, I agree with Danae. It sounds like you got a really good balance going on. And what you're doing is so cool. Like, that is awesome. I, I love that. Bravo. Yeah. I'm going to get someone here, right back here. This gentleman here with the, with the logo on his chest. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. All I can see is a floating Nike symbol. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Now, th they're paying you to wear that, or <laughs> how does that work? Consumerism. Right. <laughs> What's your name, brother? Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Kyle. Uh, hey, just hey, want to say thank you for um, all that you guys do. It's um, tremendous work and tremendous message. Thanks for being here. Um, thank you. What's on your mind? I would just be interested to hear uh, your all's take on um, hoarding and being the child of a hoarding parent. Um, my um, parent that I'm speaking of specifically, um, my parents are divorced, but um, the one specifically, maybe, I don't remember the exact classifications of hoarding, but would probably be like a level three, level four um, uh, level hoarder. Um, and how, I would be interested, like how the interactions through, you know, the course of my childhood influenced my um, thought processes because because I've become like, the collect I'm the guy that collects things, whether it's art, comics, trading cards, or whatever like that. And then the shift, you know, I feel like that's a big influence from my my parents' lifestyle and stuff like that. Um, what would be the group's take on like how do you have those conversations with your parent because you care about them, but you know you can't force them to change their you know certain behaviors and stuff like that. Um, how do you have those tough conversations with the people in your life that you really care about? 
Yeah, that's, uh, that's rough, especially growing up around it because you feel like you have so little control over it. And then, of course, when you leave that environment, you pick up some of those habits, and we, we tend to think that it's, well, it's healthier for me to collect things. You know, collecting is well-planned hoarding. Um, now, if it's intentional and you're getting immense value from it, great. The difference between a collection and an actual hoard is the intentionality behind it, right? And so hoarding is unintentional. There, you, you mentioned the, the stages of hoarding, and I could talk about those briefly. We did a whole episode of the podcast, by the way, so you can check that out, just the Minimalist podcast. We did a whole episode breaking down the five stages of hoarding. But the astonishing thing is probably 90-plus percent of Americans are at least stage one hoarders. And, and so we see those people on t our TVs where they're like, you know, there's dead cats in their freezer. <laughs> Sorry to the cat people again. <laughs> so what is that? that, that is, that's stage five hoarding. And it's easy for us to point a finger and sort of sneer and say, ah, oh, yeah, well, I, at least I'm not like that. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I don't have a problem, right? And that problem is when I hold on to things unintentionally, that is hoarding. And so a stage one hoarder is someone who has an abundance of stuff. They have so much stuff that there isn't even a place for anything anymore. Beyond that, you go to stage two or three. Three is where it starts to get difficult to get into some rooms from time to time or get into a closet or a basement. Um, stage four and five is like food scraps and, and uh, sometimes feces around the house. So like you, th there, are, there are different levels to this, but even stage one hoarding creates a lot of discontent in our lives. And so the way to deal with that is you can't change that other person if they don't want to change. When Ryan came to me and asked about the whole minimalism thing, he asked me about it. I didn't jump up and say, hey, man, look, I'm becoming a minimalist, and you need to, too, because you are a freaking hoarder. <laughs> that wouldn't work, right? And so the only thing that did work is I showed him the benefits of simplifying my life, and that was much more attractive to him than simply getting rid of excess stuff. Because you see pain in the letting go of stuff, but you see the joy and the benefits of letting go. Have any of you read the book, Far From the Tree, by Andrew Solomon? No. It's one of my favorites. So in this book, Andrew Solomon, he's a man who is gay and dyslexic, and he is very different from his family of origin. And it's, it's an amazing book. It's huge. It's like 1,000 pages. I have not finished it. First chapter's great, though. Um, <laughs> so he talks about how when you fall far from the tree, when you don't mimic or imitate your parents' behaviors and lifestyles and identities, that would be falling close to the tree, that it's hard to connect with that family of origin. It's hard to maintain that connection over time. And I think that when we reflect on that, we have to remind ourselves that when you approach this, if you approach this, if you never even talk about this with your parents, they still may experience your, your move towards a simpler life as a rejection because you're moving away from the group identity that they created when they were raising you. So I, and I, I fall far from the tree too, so I know how that feels and I, I've seen firsthand one generation to the next how it feels like a rejection and how do you find that connection despite the fact that you're moving in different, in different ways and you're, and you're stepping away from the tree a little bit. It's possible, but I think noticing that when it comes up is important. 
one thing I'll say too is there's, it's easy to equate legalism with, with minimalism. Minimalism, you don't want to think about it mathematically. You want to think about it in terms of meaning, right? It's not about how much stuff you have. It's about the quality of awareness that you bring to life itself. So it's not about owning the right amount of things. It's about minimizing and decluttering the thoughts and practices that get in the way of your own liberation. So what's the right amount of stuff to have? Five, 10 things, 20 things? You'll know if you have too many things when you run out of purposes for which to use them. That's it. So for one person that might be 19 things, for another person that might mean 1999 things. There's no objectivity about this. It's based on what is right for you. When it comes to other people, I think it's important that you embody the things that you believe in a way that makes others naturally curious about your beliefs. When you do that successfully, they'll come asking you and you won't have to preach it. So when it comes to parents, I would just say, love them as they are because that is the greatest testimony to everything that you believe because it is extremely difficult to be right without being righteous about it. And when you can show someone that you're capable of holding on to a beautiful idea while still giving them space to be who they are, that's a powerful witness to the things that you want them to see too. The second thing is be available to them. There will come moments in life where they will need little bits and pieces of what you have to offer when they ask. And when they do, don't overwhelm them, but simply be available and help them in love. There is nothing in our philosophy that's worth listening to if we're not embodying it in a way that makes people beg us to talk about it. That's beautiful. Ryan, TK is reminding me of one of the very first blog posts on our, our website. So um, Ryan and I were still in the corporate world. We started TheMinimalists.com. It's like, hey, how did you guys uh, become The Minimalists? It's like, well, the domain was available for $7. <laughs> I remember when you came to me with that name, uh -huh. and I was like, dude, we can't be the minimalists. I'm like, we got to come up with something else. And you were like, wait, 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 wait what did you not like about it? I, it just sounded too, like, we were the authorities on minimalism. <laughs> and I still don't feel like that, but the domain was available. So I didn't, and, and Josh was like, well, what do you want to be? What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think would be a good domain to, like, you know, to, to put your story on? Because it started with that packing party story. I don't know, like wandering aimfully or like, <laughs> he was like, is that really better than the minimalist? I'm like, no. He's like, do you have a better idea than the minimalist? I'm like, no. He was like, all right, well, we'll, we'll just use it as a placeholder for now. And we're, it's still a placeholder. So if you come up with a better name, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> you know, um, right after we wrote about your packing party thing, the thing that we put up there, I, I saw all these other minimalists, right? There was like Colin Wright and Nina Yao and, and these different people who were like extreme minimalists and they were counting their 52 items, Colin Wright. Um, there was Nina was like, here's my 45 items. And there was one guy, here are the 15 items I own. And that's legalism. That, that he, and I was like, oh, well, I don't ever, like, I really like having a couch, so I'm not going to win this competition. I think the ultimate minimalist like, you never heard about them because they don't even have a computer to post their belongings on. Oh. Yes. <laughs> and, and so, you know what? I, uh, I wrote this blog post. It was about the 288 items I own. And that was, like, people took it seriously like, as though I had really counted 288 items. But what I realized is that people were cheating. Even when they own 15 items, I'm like, wait, that's a one pair of socks. That's two items. 
And I, so I just like, oh, my sock drawer, one item. Um, yeah, my bookshelf, one item. And, and as I wrote about this, so many people took it seriously because we do want a prescription. And I really wish there was the, here are the hundred things that I can give you. And now you'll be happy, you'll be content. And by the way, if you can convince your parents to just own these 150 items, perpetual bliss for the rest of their lives. But minimalism, intentionality, simplicity doesn't work like that. Because the things that added value to my life when I owned those 288 items, many of those things wouldn't add value to my life today. So minimalism isn't just about bringing in things and questioning those things we bring in or questioning the things we let go of, but question the things I have right now. Does this serve a purpose in my life? Does it add value in some way? Does it enhance my life, augment my life, amplify my life in some way? If so, wonderful. I don't want to deprive myself of that. But as soon as it stops adding value, if I let it go, then I can move on from it. And perhaps someone else can get value from that thing that once brought value to my life. Thanks for your question. Yeah. You know, one thing you always say, Josh, is to change someone is to unlove them. And it's the same thing when we try to convince someone. And when, when, Kyle, when you think about your parents, like to love them is to see them, to welcome them, to support them, to respect them for who they are. And that's really what they want. That's what we all want, especially, you know, when, when it's a family member, but even a stranger, like when we're having a conversation, that's what we want. We want to be seen. We want to be understood. We want to be respected. On a certain level, we want to be loved. Um, so if you do those things with your parents, like you're always going to have amazing conversations with them. There's no doubt. Hey, last thing, it's really another form of consumerism in disguise, right? Yes. Because the fallacy of consumerism is if I can just have that thing, then I'll be happy. My life will be complete. And having someone else agree with you is just another intangible thing we think we need to have in order to be free. But freedom isn't the power to make other people believe as you believe. Freedom is the power to create the results that matter most to you in spite of the presence of people who condemn you and disagree. One of my favorite moments in um, one of the Matrix sequels is you have the character Morpheus who believes in all of these esoteric things. And there's this practical military man who's just so frustrated with him. He just has a moment and he says, darn it, Morpheus, not everyone believes as you believe. And Morpheus says, fortunately, my beliefs do not require them to. Once we've given up all of the things that hold us back from becoming the best version of ourselves, there's still one more thing we have to let go of, and that's the need to have everyone else believe as we do. Man, that movie still holds up. <laughs> all right, we got someone back there. Wait, yeah, right here, right here, right here. Hey guys. What's your name? Uh, my name is Jake. Hey Jake. Uh, What's so on I'll, your mind? A lot actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially being here. Um, so I think the one thing I really struggle with, with uh, I've really embraced minimalism, and it's kind of this extreme end of minimalism, is I'm very hyper focused on my financial goals and tackling debt. There's no credit card debt, just student loans. And uh, the one thing I feel really guilty about is kind of getting a latte or 
get even with these lovely ladies here, like I didn't want to get food because I just got a bunch of stuff from the grocery store. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's tricky um, because I want to be able to have fun but not feel guilty. Um, and I don't want to take away from my, my financial goals and uh, what I'm pursuing in that. So just uh, I'm asking for advice because I know you guys are in the industry of giving advice. But in this case, I'm asking for it. So. Um, yeah, it does sound like Jake's asking for advice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't give advice. I mean, we, 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 we are trying to get out of the advice business because our advice doesn't mean anything. But, I mean, I guess we definitely have some observations. There's nothing wrong, Jake, with having the money goals. Um, I guess, are you, are you telling yourself, like, man, when I reach these goals, then I'll be able to treat myself? Or is it still going to be an issue even then? They're still going to yeah, it'll still... It'll there's still always going to be, like, you know how student loans, I mean, everyone, everyone seems like there's al they're always in debt, or you know what I mean? So I think uh, it's kind of the opposite of, oh, the more things I have, the happier I'll be. It's more of the more I achieve my goals, the happier I'll be. And, and for me, it's like, well, I'm no fun. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to go out to concerts and, and, and do these wild things. I just want to, I just want to do my own thing and... and Sometimes I feel like there's something wrong with that. Jake, it's okay to temporarily deprive yourself for a period of time. You don't have financial goals. You're in a financial crater. And there's a big distinction that I'd like to make. I don't have any goals in my life. But anytime I get into a crater, I want to get out of that crater. So one major crater, probably the biggest or second biggest crater in our lives in the Western world, is debt. Ryan hurled a bunch of stats at you earlier about the trillions of dollars in debt. We can't even wrap our minds around how much debt that we have. And so I had tremendous, I had six figures worth of debt. And so what you're really trying to do, you're not trying to reach a goal, you're trying to untether yourself from this thing that is preventing you from being free. That is not unlike the letting go of things, the things that get in the way of you being free. So. What do you value? If you value freedom, then anything that is keeping you from that freedom, I'm going to do whatever I can to, uh, to untether from that. Can I continue just a little bit? Like, yeah. I, I have my own business, and I have, I, I, I'm a wedding videographer. So I go out to different cities and capture weddings, and that's what, that's what I do. Uh, and so that, that's my fun. But how do I, how, how can I... I'll leave it at this. Uh, what's fun outside of work? You know what I mean? How do I discover that without sacrificing minimalism? You know what I mean? Mm. Well, man, first off, you have a job that's fun. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I, I think in, you sound like maybe you're a seven, too, because I am all about having fun all the time, and I had to really get comfortable with not having fun all the time. So that, I, would just, I would just let you... I would leave you with that just to, to think about. It's okay to not be on this, you know, manic high all the time from having fun. I struggle with it. That's why I'm even speaking about it. It sounds like maybe you're asking for like a pass to, to like to live a little or to treat yourself a little bit. And we give you the pass, Jake. <laughs> you, my friend, are allowed to live a little. But, but I'll tell you, like my wife and I, we set money aside every month to travel. And we have been able to travel for two years. So we got a nice little fun saved up to travel. But we are always having in mind, like, we know we want to travel. You know that you want to live a little. So since you're so good with money, you could incorporate that in your budget. Just, you know, put a little money in there each month that is, you know, this guilt-free, 
fund that you can dig in and buy some chicken wings with at the Funny Bone. Because <laughs> that's what I get if I was you. <laughs> I have a question for the question. So do you really want to go to concerts and do these things, or do you feel like you should want to go? Okay, so then... Right, so I think maybe you're... Do you think you're an introvert? Okay, so maybe you're an introvert who feels like you, there's a certain list and you have to check these boxes. This is fun, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm 20-something, I should be doing this or that. And I think maybe the real work here is to figure out what is fun to you and maybe that's sitting around watching Netflix, whatever it is. But it doesn't have to be concerts, it doesn't have to be clubs. There's this excellent line from uh, James P. Carse's Finite and Infinite Games, and he says, the first rule of play is that he who must play cannot play. Anytime you are forcing yourself to play out of guilt, out of compulsion, you're not really playing. That's what Josh was talking about earlier today when he said mimetic desire, right? And so in order to truly have fun, you have to embrace what that means for you and not pressure yourself to look fun. There's a difference between looking like you're fun, which someone else defines, and actually having fun. And sometimes we have to take the risk of being boring to other people in order to be adventurous and fun and alive to ourselves. The second thing I'd say is there's a difference between money and wealth. Wealth is defined by what you are willing to give up your money for. When I pay money for a haircut, the haircut is wealth, the money, is the means of exchange by which I procure the wealth. And so it makes no sense to chase after money and chase after money and lose out on wealth, which gives the money meaning. And so my question for you is, what are you willing to give up the money for? That's your why. And you don't have to arrive at the answer to that question through introspection and analysis. You can give yourself some room to experiment, to explore. Try some things that you haven't done before. Experiment with some things and discover through the process of trial and error what it is that feels good to you, what it is that you like, and then devote your life more and more to those things. When I think about that passage in the Bible, can I quote a scripture in a comedy club? Where it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. That often gets misquoted as money is the root of all evil, but it's actually the love of money is the root of all evil. And on the surface, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because if one guy punches another guy out of revenge because that guy said something hurtful to him, that doesn't seem to be connected to money in any kind of way, but it's the love of money. And the love of money is the prioritization of that which is seen over that which is unseen. The love of money is when you exalt products and profits over people. The love of money is when you take tangible things and you place it on a higher place than intangible things. And so whenever we focus on getting money, getting money, and we lose sight of the why that drives us to go after those things in the first place, we become lovers of money and our entire lives become empty, even though our houses might be filled with lots of things, even though our bank account might be filled with lots of money. It's easy to be poor, even though you're rich in money, if you don't actually give that money up for the true wealth. So find out what wealth means to you let everything else go, and don't waste your life chasing after somebody else's definition of fun. Mm. Yeah. Man. This young lady over here. While he's walking up, TK, you reminded me, 
I've, I've been to so many like New Year's Eve parties and Halloween parties because that's what I was supposed to do. And I'm an extrovert. Yeah. But like you don't really connect with people yeah. at those parties. Yeah. And I cannot tell you, like I had to eventually realize like I need to stop doing what I think looks fun. <laughs> Figure out what fun is for me. And there's something about boundaries there as well. It's financial boundaries. Uh, in a few days, we're going to be in Minneapolis, and my wife's family, most of them live in Minneapolis. And uh, Bex, my wife, was like, can you stay after for like a couple days and we'll hang out with my family? I said, no, I'll stay after for a meal. <laughs> but there's a reason being. It's not that I dislike her family. It's that I know what is most appropriate. And if I were to spend, I've tried to spend a week there, and they don't get the best version of me. So, Jake, if you're showing up somewhere as the person who isn't the best version of you, then it may not even be worth showing up at all. I'd rather show up for this radically attenuated period of time, this one or two hour period, and they get all of me, the best of me, than five days of the worst of me. Yeah. But what if the worst of you is the real you? <laughs> now we're asking the real questions around here. That, that one's easy. The worst of me is me, right? And that's a, that's a piece of me, right? And so a lot of the time it is my reaction to something. It was the acronym HALT earlier, right? And so um, the, the, I'm reacting to the environment. So the worst of me is if I stay there for five days, they are going to get the real me over a five-day period. The if I'm there, real him. Yes. Yeah. If I'm there for two hours, they'll also get the real me, which would be the best version of me, right? And so it's kind of like uh, I'm, a, I'm a sprinter. I'm not a marathon runner when it comes to time with other people. Yeah. And that's okay, right? Knowing your limits. No. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. It's, it's knowing what your limits are so you can create boundaries around them and still being flexible enough that it's not so strict that it's constricting. Howdy, what's your name? Hey, I'm Janine. Hey, Janine. Uh, from Dayton. Yeah, uh, Dayton in the house. <laughs> Go Flyers. Uh, I moved here from New York, uh, one of the most expensive cities out there. And, uh, you know, growing up, my parents grew up pretty poor and worked their way to be able to own or buy a home in New York. Uh, they eventually were able to purchase uh, what is now a million dollar home but um, you know they had to take out a second mortgage uh, to be able to pay for my father's spending habits and whatnot um, and they got divorced they uh, eventually were in so much debt they did not get back you know half of what they had put out on interest and all their payments so you guys have changed my life you know coming to Dayton Ohio I, I originally thought I had to buy a home that was the same size or bigger than what my parents owned in order to be what was called successful. Um, and, you know, driven by this whole American dream that you guys always mention, uh, you know, and, and I think uh, eventually I've gotten to be able to, we've bought a condo instead and we bought a 15-year loan. We're on track to be able to pay it off in five years. And I am, <laughs> you know, just come to the realization that my parents never owned anything. They just bought and bought and bought and were in so much debt. And so you know, my husband and I are trying to create general, generational wealth for my two-year-old daughter. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on, what are your thoughts on generational wealth? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, Ryan and I grew up really poor, like bottom 2% probably of, of Americans, not the world, certainly. Um, bottom 2% of America is still in the top, you know, 5, 10% of the world. But, um, and so it helps to put things in perspective. We grew up really poor, food stamps, government assistance, a lot of, um, well, dis-ease in the home, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, physical abuse in the homes. Um, and I thought, like you, that to be successful, I could get the things and it would make me successful. And here's the, here's the dangerous part about that. It did make me successful. But success made me fucking miserable. And that's the thing we don't talk about. Yes, money will make you successful. Yes, the things will make you successful. A Rolex, a closet full of designer clothes, a big suburban house, 6,000 square feet, driving the luxury cars, plural. That stuff will make you successful. But there's a good chance it's also going to make you miserable. So are you willing to give up your happiness for success? You know, choose one. Or, of course, we can redefine what success is for us. For me, it's you know, being debt-free. It's experiencing peace and tranquility. It's having the ability to say no when I want to say no so I can say yes to the things that are most important. So if generational wealth is important to you, wonderful. You're able to say yes to that because you're saying no to these other things that would make you successful but would also get in the way of what's important to you. TK, thoughts? <laughs> I'll, I'll dive in. So, economically speaking, wealth is a reward for creating value. Think about any time you've ever paid anybody money, it's because they've solved a problem for you or they've created value as you define value in some kind of way. So if you wanna be wealthy, you can't focus on trying to get people to give you money. You gotta focus on developing your skills, developing your talents in such a way so that you can enhance the quality of other people's lives. The best way to make money is to be a student of other people's problems and you solving them. So when we talk about generational wealth, I, I'm a big fan of generational wealth. I'm a big fan of it. It might be top two on my life agenda. Not only doing that for my family, but also teaching other people how to do that. But we've got to define what wealth means in order to do it properly. It doesn't mean that you put pressure on yourself to be a millionaire before you die. It doesn't mean you look at yourself as a loser if you're not rich enough to prevent your kids from experiencing any kind of struggle. Generational wealth, for me, means two things. It means, number one, that you teach your children how to respect their own creative power so that they know they have the ability to leave this world differently than it was when they came into it that they actually can make a positive difference in other people's lives and navigate their experiences by doing so. You gotta leave them that inheritance. There's so many people in this world who underestimate their creative power and feel like they have no options other than to be pushed and pulled by forces they can't control. You leave your children with that knowledge of self, that's all the wealth they'll need. The second thing is to leave them with a concept of financial literacy. We pass along our debts to children, we pass along our bad spending habits to children. We pass along unhealthy dreams to children. 
And then the moment someone wants to talk about financial literacy, oh, we're talking about money too much. We don't want to do that. We want to pass along a legacy of financial literacy and teach our children how to avoid debt traps, how to think critically about their spending, how to think critically about investing, how to do their own research and so on. And then ultimately teach them that the ultimate form of wealth is relationship because nothing that we own means anything if we don't have people to share our experiences with. You do those three things, even if you don't die a millionaire, you will have passed on the kind of wealth that matters to the next generation. And I think we all should be striving to do that. Yeah, I think when, when I think about generational wealth, what I'm hoping for with my kids is that they learn to to focus their money on what matters the most and to watch us, their parents, spending and see us setting limits on our own spending. Um, we live about an hour outside of New York City and every time we go into the city, it's just there are so many opportunities to spend. There is so much to eat, so many ice creams to try, so many um, street vendors to blow bubbles for you, whatever it is. There's so many opportunities to spend that have nothing to do with stuff. And I think that as minimalists, my partner and I are most challenged by not spending excessively on the non-tangible stuff even, because setting those limits is really important because I do have $5 to get the guy to blow bubbles for us in Central Park. But if we do that every time we come across a new vendor selling something else and I'm not setting a limit on that, my kids are seeing that. And I can't, I don't know if my kids are gonna have five bucks for that in the future or not, depending on where, what sort of life situation they're in, the decisions that they're making for themselves. So I think the decisions that I'm making around my spending, not just with my stuff, but with everything, and regulating that and getting all of that under control and being thoughtful about it, they see it. And I try to talk through it too, which is hard, because I think as grown-ups, we're so used to just spending and not talking about it, but. You know, when you go to the grocery store and you're like, oh, this peanut butter is $5.99 and this one's on sale for $3.99. I think I'm gonna buy the one for $3.99 because that saves me $2. You don't verbalize any of that as an adult, but if you've got a kid with you, can you talk about that and make it part of the conversation? Take what's out in here and put it into words for them, so. Absolutely. Man, this makes me think about, uh, <clears throat> so my mom actually grew up really rich. Uh, my, my grandfather, my grandma, had a lot of money and she would tell me stories about how uh they still live in like gatlinburg cobbling knob tennessee if anyone knows where cobbling knob is um it's in the mountains in the smoky mountains and she would tell me how her dad would buy her a car she'd go speeding through the mountains she'd total it he'd buy her a new car she'd go speeding through the mountains she'd total it he'd buy her a new car and you know she like wore it as a badge like my dad bought me that's her voice too my dad bought me so many cars. <laughs> what did the New York magazine? The car yeah. What, what did New What did New York magazine say that she sounded like? Oh, oh just gruff. That's yeah, what it yeah. Was, yeah. His, his gruff mother. <laughs> and um, but what that did is it actually didn't teach her what to do with things when she had it because when I grew up as a child with my mother, we were poor and we were on government assistance. And so the genera generational wealth thing, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with wealth, nothing wrong with poverty, there's nothing wrong with, you know, wherever you fall on the socioeconomic level. Really, you know, I wish that, and this is what I'll focus on if I have kids, and it's so easy for me to, again, like talk about, oh, when I have kids, this is how it's gonna be. But 
It's about teaching the, 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 the kids to, um, yes, to be responsible with that generational wealth. Like that's, that's an even more important lesson than just handing them some wealth that you have accumulated. You know, with, with all that money comes a pretty big responsibility. Right down here. Up front. Holly, what's your name? Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm not going to stand up because I'm right in front of you. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a fellow seven and extrovert, so hello. Oh, I get exactly what you're saying. Um, I guess my question is, um, so I am a big advocate of zero waste, and I feel like minimalism kind of goes hand in hand with zero waste, and um, you know, being mindful about your waste, I kind of like the term mindful waste a little better, but I'm very, um, I'm very into learning about it, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on like, for everybody here that's trying to get rid of stuff, that's trying to declutter their homes, you know, my mom is trying to declutter her home. For all of these people, what is your advice for kind of being aware of environmental issues? You know, landfills are full of people's junk that they're trying to get rid of, you know? So I just wanted to hear your kind of advice on how people can get rid of waste. Don't rent mindfully. a dumpster. <laughs> Don't rent a dumpster. Yes. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Landfills are full of waste that we once got value from, or more likely than not, perceived we were going to get some value from something. It sat in a closet or a basement or an attic or a garage for a while, and five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years later, it ended up in a landfill. But in addition to the landfills being filled with a bunch of useless things, our lives are filled with a bunch of useless things. We've created landfills 3,000 square foot landfills that are neatly organized. And so we go to the container store, we buy these clutter coffins, <laughs> and we turn our basements into mausoleums of junk. And when we do that, we're essentially just moving things around from one waste pile to another because we're not getting value from any of it. And it's incredibly difficult to figure out how am I going to find a home for each item I'm trying to get rid of? Especially if you're trying to get rid of hundreds of thousands of items or tens of thousands, it can become overwhelming. People just throw their hands up. It's why I really respect and appreciate the zero waste thing, but the thing that I've learned is that by consuming less, by bringing fewer things into my life, I produce so much less waste now. Like 90, 95% less waste than I did back just a, you know, a decade and, and a half ago. And that's simply because I'm intentional with what I bring in. But also with the things that I bring in, I'm careful to, you know, it's weird being back in Ohio even. I was at the grocery store yesterday in Dayton. They're like, do you want paper or plastic? And it's like, oh, I forgot about plastic bags. That's still a thing, huh? And you, you, don't, you, you don't really think about it. So it starts at, at even that level. I have to make a conscious choice right now because Yes, one water bottle, not terrible for the planet at all, right? Um, but one water bottle each meal every day over the course of a year, a decade, a lifetime. My God. The one thing I will tell you, and you know this as, as a zero waste person, but I think most of the people in here may have this delusion that recycling is helping. But every serious environmentalist I talk to, we even had one in, in the film that Danae and, and TK were in, um, they will tell you, often off camera, that it's just the opiate of the masses. Like, 
uh, the, for the plastic, for example, we were just with Seth Godin in New York, and he was talking about how roughly 7% of the plastic that goes in recycle bins actually gets recycled. And if you want your plastic to end up in the ocean, put it in a recycle bin. If you don't want it to end up in the ocean, either A, put it in a landfill, or don't bring it home in the first place. I think only a small percentage of everything that's been recycled since like 1950 has actually been recycled. Right. I think it's like 10%, something very, very small. If less than you, yeah, less than you would want. But it makes us feel good. So we put out the bins and oh, if I just right. sort these things and then you go to San Francisco and there's seven different bins. Oh, we used to work in this co-working space. Uh, our first uh, studio out in Hollywood was um, in this co-working space. And you would go, and there's like a, a bin for the plastic and a bin for the trash. And then uh, I, was late, I was there late one night, and I saw the, uh, the cleaning guy come by, and he pulls both out, and he just dumps both into a trash can. And I'm like, oh, they're just doing that for us to make us feel like we're part of the good, right? When the real, quote-unquote, good is well, not bringing it in in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's such a great point. Because like, people will reach out and they're like, oh, I've got all this stuff, and you know, I tried to sell it. I can't sell it. I, I tried to uh, give it away. No one will take it. I tried to donate it. They won't take it. So like, my only option is, like, to, kind of, you know, is to throw it out. I don't want to put it in the landfill. And you know, obviously, there are some things you got to get rid of responsibly, batteries and oil and things like you can't just you know, put in your trash can. But with the exception of those things, or maybe even without the exception of those things, as soon as you bring something into your house, like the damage has already been done. It doesn't matter what you do with it after that. Again, with the exception of some obvious things. So um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's not about what do we do with the, the trash that we have, it's about consuming less and, and having less trash. It is, cra like, it is crazy, the, it is like the recycling and everything, it's just there to make us feel like we're, we're helping the environment, we're doing something good. Um, yeah. I kind of feel like that initial big decluttering was like ripping the Band-Aid off. It wasn't that intentional. Um, a lot of stuff did end up going into the garbage, but I will tell you, so I got rid of my whole wardrobe, 90% of my wardrobe, and I had these big black leaf collection bags, two of them, huge, full. And I set them out by the road, and I put a message on our local Facebook group, my entire wardrobe is out by the road in two <laughs> giant bags, whoever wants it, come and take it. And I remember the feelings that I had when I put those bags out there. I was embarrassed that I had accumulated all of those clothes, mostly from Marshalls and TJ Maxx on the clearance racks that were a great deal, things I didn't even like. Um, but I was embarrassed that I had accumulated them all and that I was creating all of this waste that eventually is going to end up in a landfill, even though I, d I wasn't the one that put it in the landfill, it's going to end up there. But I felt like this is when I can make the change. You know, like Joshua said, like going from here on out, moving forward, this visual that I see, this of I have created, it really was a change point for me that I'm gonna do better from here on out. I'm not bringing this stuff in. And I have, and our whole family has. And so not only have I made a change, but my kids now, you know, they're growing up with this different lifestyle where they're accumula accumulating less. So the change that I made, I think will filter down hopefully to the generations to come too. You know, um, that reminds me of, of two things. Um, one is our friend Colin Wright, who's the person who introduced us to minimalism. He, um, 
the idea, we got the idea of the, the pack, Ryan's packing party where he packed up all his stuff, he pretended he was moving, and then he would unpack it for the next 21 days, and, and everything that was left he sold or donated or, or whatever. Um, it turns out if you put the word party at the end of anything, Ryan will show up. <laughs> I'll bring the beer. <laughs> well, before that, it was Colin Wright, and he and his, uh, his girlfriend at the time had a uh, breakup party. And um, they realized they both wanted to move to different cities. It wasn't the same city. And so they said, hey, a month from now, we're going to have a breakup party. At midnight, we'll change our Facebook status because that's how you knew the, it was official. And um, because they didn't want to deal with all of their stuff, there was one room in the house they were living in. They just put everything they didn't want in there, and they called it the yard sale room, except they contacted all their friends like you did, and they just said, hey, if you want anything that we own, anything in that room is yours. One stipulation, you don't show me what you're taking out of the house because I don't want to beg you for it back. And that's one of the most intentional ways because you're, you're certain someone's getting value from it as opposed to, as you said, yeah, I think when we first let go, we get really excited. And it's sort of like that story I told at the beginning with Jason and Jennifer Kirkendall. They were just throwing everything into a dumpster. And that's quite often what we do, and that's not intentional either. I understand their impulse to do that. I have the impulse to do that. I have the impulse still to do that with things. But if I can pause for a moment and say, okay, how long will it take for me to get rid of this? And so we have, we have uh, one rule. It's just called how to let go of possessions. And if you want to get rid of something, try to sell it. If it doesn't sell in seven days, lower the price. If it doesn't sell in 30 days, donate it. If you can't donate it, then eventually you'll recycle it. If you can't recycle it, then yeah, it might make its way to the landfill. But if you follow that, not everything's gonna end up in, in the landfill. Thanks for your question. Thank you. This one right behind. Howdy. What's your name? Alexis. Hey Alexis. I've been so excited because whenever I first got up to go to the bathroom, you guys actually walked in. And one of you touched my shoulder. I didn't see who it was because you guys were on my left side, which I'm pointing out because you said you couldn't touch us. She'll, um, I, she'll never I'm wash perfectly, that shoulder again. I am perfectly fine. But I thought it was funny because you guys were like, sorry, we can't hug you. We're just not going to touch you. And I'm like, I am the special case in this situation. I'll be honest. Um, we hugged a bunch of people as we were walking in, but like we've just been told by the venues and so forth we're not supposed to do that. But we, you know, it sucks. I'm sorry. It's What's okay. on your mind? Um, so there's actually uh, one statement that I would really like to make. Um, wanted to thank Shannon. Uh, I actually met her through your guys' group. Uh, she brought me with me and my boyfriend tonight. Um, he yeah. is not very, uh, like, he's new to minimalism, and he also had a question, but we will get to that later, hopefully. Um, <laughs> Did you drag him out here kicking and screaming? Uh, he actually wasn't very <laughs> upset with the fact that we were carpooling with a stranger. Oh, cool. Um, so... <laughs> We're here, and we made it, and he's having fun, so I love it. Um, What's sorry to throw you out like that. Do you love have him. a question, right? <laughs> I do. Um, <laughs> that was my statement. Sorry. Um, so I am um, a college student who's also in debt, and I also bought a house last year who is now also in more debt. Um, and I, I am quitting a job that I've had for two years um, because of how much stress it has caused me, and I do not think I can concentrate in my higher-level classes. Um, I know I don't need permission for that. Like, perfectly fine, quit your job, do whatever. Um, my thing is, is like, when you guys jumped out of the corporate world, and this is little comparison, because again, it's a student position job, it's part-time, it's small, um, and I'm going to a smaller job, 
like what were the thoughts that you guys had to fight when you guys were doing that? Like personally, like it's emotional for me because I, I love the people I was working with, I loved the job and the meaning behind it, but I feel like I'm losing part of myself because the, the job that I wanna take after I graduate isn't in that field. And I feel like I'm going to lose a part of myself for helping other people. Yeah, th this is a question really about identity. We get really tied up and in fact, it's the first question we ask someone when we meet them, right? What do you do? It seems like a really nice question. Like, oh, it's just, and it's small talk. It's not like a gotcha question, but what the hell do you mean? What do I do? I, I drink water. I <laughs> eat cheeseburgers. I tell jokes about cats. I have three cats. <laughs> yeah, you got a and joke a now? <laughs> May they rest in peace. No. <laughs> Not yet. Anyway, um, so, so we ask, what do you do? And what we try to do is we recite back whatever is our job title, right? And, and I get it. It's wrapped up and that's it. And really what we're saying is, how do you make money so I can compare you to me on the socioeconomic ladder? That's about how per pernicious it is, but that's not what we, why we ask that question. We're just trying to open the door. And I found one of the ways for me to unidentify with my identity was to start asking better questions. So instead of saying, what do you do? I say, what are you passionate about? Because maybe it's what you do for your nine to five to earn a living, but maybe you're just really passionate about skiing, or maybe you're really passionate about helping children read, or maybe you're really passionate about baseball cards. I, I don't care what it is, but the question, the answer, and the conversations all become so much more meaningful when we can go down that path as opposed to, well, yes, I'm the director of operations for this company. Oh, I'm an accountant. Okay, who cares? And, but what I do care about are the things that you care about. I find I can find much more interest in that if you're really passionate about something. And as soon as you uncouple that from your identity, then you realize that yourself is not the title that's on your business card, whether it's your previous job, your current job, or your next job. Yourself is not who you are. It's not that you're a mother or that you are a sister or a daughter. Like all of these things become coupled with our identity and that's who I am as a person. No, you're so much more than all of that. Yeah. Thank you. I have two pithy answers for you. Uh, you are not your job title. And I don't even know what that is, to be fair. <laughs> to be fair. Um, <laughs> sorry. And, and uh, the second one is uh, debt-free is the new American dream. It truly is. <laughs> I want to say bravo for prioritizing your mental health because it's not easy to do. I actually work at a mental health facility, which is the place I'm well, quitting you from. So well. So thanks. <laughs> I love the place. They're really great. It's just it's too much work for me to do in the short amount of time that they give me. I'll just say, you know, follow your dreams, but don't forget to let your dreams follow you. Um, sometimes we hold ourselves ourselves hostage to some prior dream that we had, and and we define ourselves by something that we wanted to do in the past, and we don't give ourselves permission to change our minds. But as we live life, we evolve. Um, we meet new people, we have new experiences, we discover new things about ourselves, and it becomes necessary to upgrade your dreams in order to reflect the person that you're becoming so that you're not just chasing after something that you wanted to do 
10 years ago, five years ago, and so on. So you're in this space right now that's characterized by a lot of uncertainty. Once upon a time, you knew exactly what you wanted to do, I'm gonna get after it, and now that's not working, you've discovered something new about yourself, and you've gotta create a new future, and you don't get the luxury of having an identity, but that's a beautiful place to be in because it's from that space that you can create a new you. It's scary, but it's the most valuable opportunity that you have. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for the question. So I see that we're actually over on time, so we could either wrap it up now or we could do a couple more. What do you think? All right, let's do a couple more. Let's we haven't really been to this side, have we? No, we haven't. Who do we, oh, we, this gentleman over here. The gentleman flailing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Howdy, what's your name? Um, Sean Wallace. Oh, we met outside. Yeah, we did. We got hugs. That's right, I got <laughs> hugs. Okay, wait, I have to say who this guy is. Dr. Sean Wallace. Dr. Sean Thunder Wallace. <laughs> this is a guy who is a world-renowned jazz musician. He's... You won't name a jazz musician that this guy has not shared the stage with. He's a protege. He's been playing the saxophone and several other instruments since he was young, since like a kid. He was on Good Morning America. Um, yeah, Sean Thunder Wallace is the man, so it's an honor to have you here, sir. Wow. Yeah. Also director of jazz studies at Ohio State University. That's right. I.O., that's right. So you stole my, my line there. I was going to do that. Anyhow. Um, you can still do it. So uh, I love the Rocky movies, the whole universe, right? And so I frequently go through all of the movies, Rocky one through six, and actually six is actually called Rocky Balboa, and then both of the Creed movies, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that, uh, it's, a, it's, it's really great storytelling. Uh, there's this interaction that Rocky has with his son, and no matter what he does, he's not able to sort of bestow the same sort of grit, the same sort of uh, the stuff that Rocky is made out of. His son is not really made out of that same stuff. And it's a usual thing, because it's, it's hard to find a situation where a fighter uh, either wants, even wants their kid to be a fighter, um, and uh, you same, see the same dynamic in with uh, uh, rich kids. You know, uh, they don't usually have the same sort of resolve. And in my mind, I'm thinking that most of it is because they were given stuff too quickly when they were young. And so, something that I'm concerned about with my own son is, uh, you know. He's, he's our only child, and so we give him a lot of stuff. Too much stuff, okay? And, uh, you know, it's a sign that we care about him and everything else, but you also don't want to do this to the extent that uh, it prevents him from having to strive for and uh, not sort of valuing things. Do you have some thoughts about this sort of dynamic? Because I don't know that... Uh, I don't know that, well, I, I'll, just, I'll just leave it there. 
How old's your How old's your son? He's son? he's eight. Okay. There's still time. <laughs> it's time for what? To stop giving him stuff? Or? <laughs> nah, he's, you know, it's only been eight years. Um, yeah, uh, Danae, I would love to hear what you got to say about this. <laughs> well, it's really easy to give advice on kids when you don't have any, so like you don't want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> so before I had kids, I worked um, under a supervisor who believed in this motto that you could make a kid into anything and that they were a blank slate and you could, you know, you wanted to make them a lawyer, you can make them a lawyer, you want to make them a doctor, you can make them a doctor. And that never felt right to me because we know that's not true. Kids don't come into the world as blank slates. Um, society really values grit, but at the same time we value comfort and we value security and we value love and affection and parent-child connection. And those fitting all those pieces together feels hard. I'm imagining that's something that you've probably um, wrestled with too, and I do as well. What I'm getting at here is I think that grit is part temperament. I don't think it's all parenting. I, you think about the nature versus nurture debate. And I think that some of us are born into life situations where we do have more grit based on the life that we were born into. But some of us also are born with personalities that have a tendency to be more gritty. Um, so I think it's, it's a combination of both. But I think if you have a kid who may be a little softer or maybe um, gentler or seem like they're not ready to jump into the world and you know take it for all it's worth. I don't think that, I think we can also see different positive characteristics in them. Um, I think that sometimes those kids are, you know, like we talked about introverts or they are kids whose, whose gifts really come out with time as they grow. They might not be so apparent in their early years. So I think, I think it takes time. And sometimes I think those kids, those gifts don't really come out until they're 20, 30, 40 years old, maybe. So I don't know, what do y'all think? Yeah, yeah. I, I'll go for it. <laughs> doctor, may I call you doctor? <laughs> uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> so I have an eight-year-old no. that's not particularly gritty, and he's never had a lot of stuff, <laughs> never really been indulged. Um, and I don't think, I don't know, I tend to, I tend to never take responsibility. So it wasn't my fault. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I guess he, he's so many other things. He's not particularly gritty. He won't go on a rock, walk around the block, but he is so many other things. And I think maybe that's where I try to shift my focus. And today, yeah. do you think maybe part of that is like the expectation of he should be gritty or, or shouldn't be? It, it kind of depends on, I think quite often what we do, Sean, is, is we, we try to impart our values onto someone else. And there are a bunch of different kinds of values. I think everyone has similar foundational values. But then we have like these structural values and surface values. And your kid might be completely different from you, right? And yet we think like, oh, they're going to get value if I heap some things onto them, right? But quite often what happens is, is the opposite when we water down everything that's important. By definition, if everything is significant, then nothing is significant. If everything is valuable, then nothing is valuable. That, that's just how value works, right? And so I think one of the things that is most important, and we, we talk about this in the book, in fact, it, we have a, a values worksheet in there, because I, 
if you would have asked me a dozen years ago, what are your values? I think I could have rattled off a few sort of words. Oh, my health, my uh, relationships, my community, and um, creativity. It, I, would have, I would have listed off a few things, but it, it would have sort of been empty. But as soon as I began to understand what my actual values are, and then just as important, the values of the people around me, the people closest to me, I was, be I was, better, to able, I was better able to understand them. And what that did for me was it improved my interactions with those people. Because if I understand what's important to you, then we can talk about what's important to you. I also know how to add value to your life now. As opposed to if it's my daughter, and I'm not really sure what she values, but I, I know that if I just uh, buy her some things, she might like it. Yeah, she might for a moment. Or she might just want to play with the, uh, with the packing peanuts. So what Josh is saying is just buying packing peanuts. <laughs> well, he, he likes packing peanuts. So. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> oh, um, you know, there's like a list of some things that I've heard different uh, parents say that like I just keep in my head. And, and some of these things are coming to mind. Like one is, you know, our kids don't do what we tell them to do. They, they do what we do. And that's ultimately how you're going to really teach your child is, is being that example. And then the other thing, too, is like you don't want to just tell your kids no, no, no all the time. Um, but you do want to set some boundaries with them. And now as, as, you know, as, as a parent, your job is to enjoy your kid. Like that's, that's number one thing, I would think, is to enjoy your child. Um, but you have to do that with some boundaries. And helping them understand like why those boundaries are set up, like that's really what is going to be uh, most meaningful. But ultimately, like getting your son everything he wants, that is your way of showing him that you love him. And it's a, it's a very easy way to show him. Like, yes, we care about you. We're going to say yes. We're going to give you this thing. But if it bothers you doing that, then there is a, there's, that, that's a symptom of something that maybe you want to look at. And if you want to um, challenge yourself to like, show him how much you love him without actually giving him a physical gift... I mean, that might be a good place to start, too. But again, I don't have kids, so don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> it's hard to say no, like saying no to my daughter's only Christmas wish. You know, that, that was, it was a little bit of a gut punch to myself. I could have bought it for her, for sure. It was not a problem. But I just, I didn't want to. I didn't want that turtle in my house. <laughs> and it, for me, like that saying no was, it felt significant because I felt like if I can say no to this and if I can stay true to my values now, I'm showing her how to do the same. You know, I think anytime we hold true to our values and our kids see us doing that, they're learning to do that when they grow up. How do they hold true to our family values that we're instilling in them when they, when they leave and when they move off on their own? So I think they're, you know, they're watching and you're teaching them in your decisions when you're saying no, even when it's not easy. I did, I, I did want to say how I know this guy on the end here. Oh, uh, we went to TK? college. We went to college together. Oh, wow. Awesome. And we've been best friends for oh. ever. Oh, this is this cool. my man. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. TK, you got any thoughts? How dare I advise this man? Um, but I shall. No, uh, Thunder, good to see you, man. You know, it, it's interesting because I, I heard somebody say one time that adult problems are simply childhood problems left unresolved. And so all the problems are really the same, it's just the toys get more expensive. Mm. 
um, and we become more sophisticated in our efforts to explain it away. But when we talk about the problem of consumption, we, we probably should use the word compensation because the problem isn't that we consume things because we're human. We have to consume to survive, but usually when we consume, we're compensating. We're trying to fill a void. We're trying to make up for something that's lacking in our lives. And what is that? I think it's participation in the creative process. As human beings, we are creative beings. We are meant to live life as if life itself is art. And we are most depressed and least human when we're not creative. And when I say creativity, I don't just mean like the fine arts. I don't mean painting, theater, music, poetry. I mean bringing a sense of agency and creativity and imagination and style to everything that we do. That's when we're most human. And so when we look at what's happening when we consume, in many cases, we divorce consumption from the creative process and we experience things as being unfulfilling. How many of you know what it feels like to want a video game or a car or a t-shirt or a pair of shoes and you save up for like three to four months to get it and you appreciate it after you get it? Well, it's not because you suffered for it. It's because you had something to do with that. When you consumed it, it wasn't just someone saying, here, here's a pair of gym shoes. It was you looking at that pair of gym shoes as a manifestation of your creative power. It's hard to not find joy in things when you experience things as an expression of your creative power, but when it's the other way around, when it's an expression of something that you didn't have anything to do with, we need more and more and more and more things to compensate for it in the same way that when we eat low nutrition foods, we need more and more and more food to give us that hunger. Whereas if we eat something of substance, we are full. So what I would say to you, Dr. Thunder, I don't think there's anything wrong with being generous towards your boy. I don't think there's anything wrong with giving him things, but make sure you match or exceed your giving of things with the facilitating of experiences that allow him to taste his own creative power. Let him participate in everything that you give him in such a way so that when he plays with it, when he looks at it, when he holds it, he says, this ain't just something that my mommy and daddy gave me. This is an expression of the deepest part of my humanity, my creative power, and the thing will serve him rather than the other way around. That's how you raise a man. Yeah. Yeah. We're way over, but we're gonna do one more. I see a question right here. Yes, you. Yes. <laughs> There'll be a microphone headed Good your way. Three to there it is what's your name uh my name's mary hey mary hey, mary welcome aboard thank you um first of all ryan i'm also a seven all right a lot of sevens in the crowd tonight <laughs> josh you know i have five cats <laughs> <laughs> don't do it um tk i'm sorry that your flight was canceled but maybe you could ride with them that would be fun right fun 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 okay so my question is, I'm an artist, and I, I, was, I used to sell my stuff all over the place, and uh, I gave it up a few years ago, well, about five, six years ago. I'm a creative person. I love to create things. I love to make things. But the problem is, I feel like if I go back and sell it again, then I'm, I just, you know, pushing that consumerism. You know, like if I'm, I'm a part of the problem. Who told you to sell it? Well, it's just, what do I do with it after I make it? Just give it away? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not telling you. Who told you to give it away? No, I'm just saying. I don't, who I, told I, you selling it was bad? 
Well, it's not, but it, it, I kind of feel like it is part of a consumerism thing where, you know, like, like I listen to you guys a lot, and you're always saying, um, you know, commercials and this and that, but, like, if I'm putting it up on Instagram to try to sell it, isn't that kind of a commercial? No, not at all. So what is an advertisement? An advertisement is when someone pays someone else to use their platform that they've developed in order to sell a product or service. Now, generally advertisers, what they will do is they will make you feel inadequate to sell you their goods and services, right? And so, yes, if you're uh, trying to make people feel inadequate, I would, I would encourage you not to do that. That doesn't sound to me like it's what you're trying to do. But we're, as TK has said, we're all creators in, in some form or fashion, right? Ryan and I write books or we make films. Um, we create a podcast every week, a private podcast every week as well. And so we, we create things. And I don't have a problem selling things to people who will get value from it. So there's a difference between promoting something that you've created and you believe in that someone else can get value from and beating other people over the head with something, making them feel inadequate, making them feel complete. What we're, really talk what we're talking about here is the difference between consumption and consumerism. Consumption is not the problem. Consumerism is the problem. Consumerism is thinking that buying things is going to make me whole, it's going to make me complete, it's going to make me happy, when often it does the opposite. It's almost as though we want to get rid of our desires in a way, which is really weird. We will desire something for a long time. As TK was talking about those sneakers earlier, right? You might desire your saving up for them, but part of the, the buying of those is the, part of the, the experience there is the desire. We want that desire. And when you get the sneakers, quite often we lose the, the desire for them. Quite often the objects of our desire become the objects of our discontent because, oh, you know what, they... They don't look as good on me as I thought, or I thought I'd jump higher in these things, but it doesn't work, right? <laughs> Even though I pump the Reeboks, it does nothing for me. <laughs> and um, that's what consumerism is. It says those things are going to make me better. They're going to improve me. Not amplify my life or enhance my life, but they're going to improve me, who I am as a person. That's not what you're trying to do with what you're creating. You're creating art that someone might get value from. It's not going to be for everyone. Proudly exclude anyone who it's not for so you can find the people that it is for. And for those people, you can add value to their lives, whether it's 12 true fans, 1,000 true fans, or a million true fans. If you're adding value to, your li to their lives, it's going to make them feel more alive, but it's certainly going to make you feel more alive. How many true fans equals happiness, Josh? <laughs> a thousand. Oh, perfect. So I can be happy. Yeah. <laughs> you have my permission. Yeah. It is funny how we do put, a, put silly numbers on that, um, especially when it comes to likes and shares and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, your question reminds me of our very first tour stop. Maybe it was our second tour stop. Um, we were in Orlando, Florida, and we had just wrote a book called Minimalism live a meaningful life. And someone had asked the question, and when I say tour stop, it was like me and Josh and like um, eight couch surfers who just happened to come, stumble across us and they came out 
and uh, we were at a coffee shop. Um, and they asked a question, and I was like very humbly holding back. I'm like, well, you know, we kind of like wrote about this in our book, and I could sit here, like I can't really sit here and like recite the whole chapter to you, but we talk about it, but I don't want to like push a book on you. And he was like, dude, what's your problem, man? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, what? he's like, do you believe in like the work that you do? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, then like proudly promote it, man. Like proudly, you know, sell me your book. And I really took that to heart. So now we've sold thousands of books. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you, the, the, you wanted to cry when you had to admit that you sold that. Right, <laughs> exactly, that exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, man. Uh, but, you know, in all seriousness, I think there's a certain point where I've realized we're all selling something, every single one of us. So the question is, is not if you're selling, it's what you're selling. Yeah, tweet that podcast, Sean. <laughs> Danae, any thoughts? Oh, man. So I, I'm completely with Ryan on this, that if you really believe in your product and you know, you're offering that as something to enrich someone else's life, you're not selling snake oil. And I would just remind myself of that. You know, If you believe in it and it really is going to bring joy to others, then I think it's a wonderful thing to sell. And selling is part, it's unfortunately part of, part of the process with an artist, right? So keep it up. I will say this, Danae. If it can actually be a part of the creative process as well. Um, I learned this when we first started doing The Minimalists. Like we didn't have a, a publisher. We didn't have a deal with Netflix or anything. In fact, when we made our very first film, it was just like, hey, let's just go out and do this thing, right? And we were doing it all on our own. And then we just had to figure out, like, okay, how do we get people to read this, view this, whatever it might be? Well, the best way to do that was to figure out how to add value. Because if someone gets value in what, they're, what you're doing, they tend to share it with their friends or family to add value to their lives. Because it turns out that adding value is a basic human instinct. And, and we all want to add value. When you read a book or a tweet or a blog post or whatever it might be, and it really resonates with you, the first thing you'll do is forward it to your sister or brother or aunt or mother or someone who you think will get value from it. It's because you felt something, it resonated with you, not just intellectually, but like viscerally, you felt it in your heart. And so if you're doing that for someone else, they'll share what you're doing as well, and it will reach more people that way. I'll just say um, economic value is subjective. You know, like, um, what determines the worth of a Justin Bieber album? If, if T.K. Coleman determined it, it'd be zero. Man, you leave Biebs alone, man. No, 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 no. I love the man, but I'm just not spending my money on that, right? I'm going to spend it on something else that other people will then laugh Are at, Are you right? still buying CDs? <laughs> All right, I quit. I'm done. <laughs> T.K. Coleman exposed. <laughs> That's going to be the title of the YouTube clip. Yeah. T.K. Coleman owned by Bieber. Yeah, oh, right. yeah so, so, you know, everything that you might buy with your money is something that someone else looks at as a waste of resources. Everything that someone else may buy with their money can be something that other people look at and condemn. 
But economic value isn't objective. It's just determined by what other people are willing to sacrifice for it. So when you see something cost $20, that means even if you don't like it, there's someone out there that is willing to pay that for it, even though you're free to leave it on the shelf. I say that because when you understand the subjectivity of economic value, it allows you to be free to let other people make their own decisions about what they want to make sacrifices for without feeling the need to police them, and then we become free. Because imagine how unfree we are when we never give away a dollar, we never share something we create, we never sell anything, because we demand proof ahead of time that they're gonna use it for reasons that we personally approve of. Mm. Nothing would ever be given away. You'd never give away money to people who need it if you demanded proof that they're gonna use it for something that you think is good and that works out. So we have to place faith in other people and respect where they are on their path and say, I'm only here to express what is within me and to offer that up to those who need it. And if you wanna pay $5 for this, or if you wanna freely receive my act of generosity, I give you permission to do that, even though I don't have certainty about how that's going to work out for you. That's not my business. Creativity, self-authenticity, and generosity, that's my business. The rest is up to you. Yeah. So sell your stuff, sell your stuff. <laughs> I want to say a big thanks to the, uh, the Funny Bone for having us here tonight. Let's give them a round of applause. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Danae, where can people check you out online? What's the best place? Uh, simplefamilies.com? Yeah, simplefamilies.com. I'm pretty active on Instagram, simple underscore families. All right. Make sure you say hi to her on Instagram. TK Coleman. You're, uh, What's your OnlyFans again? <laughs> Just uh, backslash. <laughs> TK. <laughs> I was the first one to sign up. <laughs> he also has a, a great show called uh, Revolution of One, or you can hear him on the Minimalist Podcast as much as we can get him in Los Angeles. Um, I want to thank you both for being here tonight, making tonight really special. Let's give it up for Danae and TK. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's so great to be back home in Ohio, you know, you paid money to get in here tonight, which is awesome for us because um, Ryan and I, our business plan used to be that um, we'd go from city to city and we have a trunk full of books. And if we sold enough books in one night, then we could split a room at the Hampton Inn. Sometimes we'd be share, uh, sharing a bed together because they didn't have any two bedrooms. We, and double, I double queen beds. Yeah, and I am a cuddler. I shit you not, a. We yeah, a Josh is a cuddler, but b. <laughs> there was one particular night where him, Colin, and I were on the road, and we had it was we had to share like a king size bed. We had to share a futon. We one shared time. a futon. Oh my god! I woke up and my arm was around each of them. <laughs> it was the worst night of my life. But now we actually have two separate hotel rooms. That's thanks to you. Yeah. But you didn't just pay money to get in here. You paid your most precious resources, your time and your attention. And we're so grateful for that. So I want to thank you for being here tonight. I don't know where you've, where you've been. I don't know where you are in life right now. I don't know where you're going. But if you leave here tonight with just one message, 
Let it be this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for being here, y'all. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.